Thanks be to God. Good morning, Redemption. <clears throat> My name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church. It's good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue our series in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be going through Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11 today. And so if that seems like a lot of scripture, don't worry. It's because it is. And at least, you know, before you're like, did the other pastors like play a joke on Jake? Or did they, were they just bad at scheduling? It's actually because this vision fits together as one unit. Um, but it's okay because it has some of the most vivid, violent, and confusing imagery in all of Revelation. So it's not a big deal. <clears throat> so we should pray. Father, I thank you for your word, how it reshapes how we think about the world, especially this passage. I love it. I love that God... Uh, you work through revelation in such amazing ways. And so we just pray, Lord, now for you to open up your word to all of us, that we might see Jesus in a new light and come to know and love him. Amen. Amen. So <clears throat> you guys want to know one of the most common fights me and Lexi had uh, over our first year of marriage? Some of you guys are like, I don't want to be in your business. Well, it's my illustration for my sermon, so you're going to hear it. Um, <laughs> So it was actually over giving directions as we drove somewhere. And I know you might be like, that's really cliche, Jake, and it's because it is. Um, but I was so snappy and anxious uh, over not knowing where to drive. I would have told you back then that it was because Lexi wouldn't tell me what turnoff to get off the road at until like we we're already past it. And I'd be like swerving and I'd be like, what are you doing? She would articulate it that... I would suddenly turn in this like anxious, controlling monster in the car that even as she read off the directions every single bit, you know, like the parts like, okay, in 4.2 miles, babe, you're gonna take exit 15A onto Thomas and turn right and go there. And I'm like, that's too many directions. And you know, who was right? The only the Lord knows, you know? And if you were to say, you know, you guys have been married eight years, surely you've worked past that. You know, you guys now have better communication within your marriage. You've gone to some marriage nights. My answer to you would be like, kind of. Um, here's what I do now. I actually just ask Lexi when she gets directions to show me the map and I zoom out and I look at where we're going so I could see the whole thing first. For some reason, that helps me with my like driving anxiety so I don't panic when she's like, turn right here and I actually know where I'm going. So that's the compromise that we do. You know, I'm sure when we get to like year 16, then we'll probably figure it out by then. Um, so I made, a, <clears throat> I made a map for us today for where we're going in Revelation, um, which we'll throw on the screen if you're like, Jake, that's really impressive. I didn't know you had such good artistic skills. You're right, I don't, Autumn does. So shout out to her for making this for me. And if you're like, well, Jake, at least you were thoughtful enough to come up with the idea to walk us through this passage. You're also wrong, Warren did. But if you were to congratulate me on surrounding myself with good men and women who are very talented, you would be correct. <clears throat> so. I, I want us to go through Revelation 8 and 11. And as you can see, we're trying to go somewhere. And I want to get there. 
Now, there are so many rich images in this text alone. It's like if we were gonna drive to Flagstaff on the I-17 and every single exit ramp, I were to take off and drive around Cave Creek for a little bit just to show you all of what Cave Creek has to offer and then Black Canyon. That would be really cool for some of us road tripping, but we would never get to Flagstaff. I would love to give you every single detail I've discovered as I've been studying these passages. However, I would then have to like wave the band off stage like one and a half hours in and you guys would be checked out and I would also start to check out, but we need to get somewhere. So what we're gonna do is there's gonna be some parts where I'm gonna tell you we're gonna need to like jog a little bit through and there's gonna be some parts where I'm gonna be like, you need to sprint. But the whole point is that as we get closer and closer to our destination, we can really take our time. You don't wanna like take all your time driving a Flagstaff in the desert and then when you get to like the mountains and the trees, you're too tired to keep going. You wanna just get there as quick as you can and then be able to look at. Now, afterwards, if you're like, I wanna know more, email me. I'll send you my notes. I'll send you all the hidden rabbit trails we never got a chance to go down. You can go to some of the Bible studies on Wednesday nights. You can listen to the podcast me and John did about the judgment series. Any of those things would be really good. And I would encourage you, go back and read through this whole passage. That would be the dream for all of our preaching is that you would read the scriptures that we're going through. So that's just a little bit, a couple of caveats as we jump into it of what I'm gonna be trying to do. Does this sound about, yeah? Like a couple nods of like, sure, you can, <clears throat> we can do that. Um, so let's, let's jump into it and get an idea of uh, where, where are we actually going? Where we're going in Revelation, at the end of chapter 11, which you just heard, is the seventh trumpet of God sounds. And it says there are loud voices in heaven the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Where's Revelation going? Revelation makes this crazy claim that because Jesus has died and resurrected from the dead, that our whole world, this world, is heading to a point where heaven will cover the entire face of the earth. That's where Revelation is going. How do we get there? Glad you asked. But before we jump into that journey, you gotta realize how hard this is even for us to imagine in today's minds. Why? Because as cool as that vision is of God's world completely healed of everything broken, I mean, no sickness, no lack of communication where we hurt each other, no violence, no war, no oppression, no trafficking, no economic, none of it. It won't exist in God's beautiful world except the only thing that will cover the entire face of the earth is one family of God's people flooded in God's presence, mercy, and love. Sounds amazing. But then you would ask, we're not there. You're here. Where here is is that peace is not the headline of our news school shootings are. Unity among different peoples of all nations, tribes, and tongues together, united in a common love, that is not where you are, but rather a world of continued systemic racism, suspicion, and division. It is hard for us to reconcile the visions that God paints of where the world is going when we live right here but it was equally as painfully uncomfortable and confusing for that first century church that read it too. 
I mean, they would have been saying constantly, Lord, we are preaching this message of good news and of Jesus' death, and then we're getting wrecked. We're losing our jobs. We're getting mocked. Friends of ours just got killed the other day I heard of because they just wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. This would have been equally as puzzling to them to say that Revelation is trying to get somewhere, but we are here. So how do we get to there? Now, now that we know a bit of where we are going, we can go a little bit through that journey How do you get to that seventh trumpet sounding? The first stop that we're actually gonna make is to the altar of incense. And this is gonna be where we're gonna see it first in chapter eight. And I'm gonna move quickly so that we can keep going along this highway. But the first stop is that the moment that John uh, gets done with the last visions of judgment from last week, he sees another seven angels show up in chapter eight right in the beginning. They all have trumpets and they're ready to sound them. But then there's another angel and he walks up and he's got this like bowl of, it's called a censer, right? Like a, like a bowl for burning incense. I know you guys are all burning incense all the time. So you know what that looks like. But he takes this bowl and he brings it forward to the altar of God and it is filled with incense to offer to God and the prayers of all God's people. And so we don't actually know in this passage what the prayers of all God's people are because it isn't mentioned, but we already know it. It was said in chapter six, if you guys remember when John was preaching last week, that the altar has under it all of God's people who had died for the faith, you remember? And they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So we need to get there, but the only way that we can go through there is we need to see this vision of the altar of incense. Why? Why do we need to drive through here to get to our location? Because you need to know that everything else that's about to happen in these visions that follow are tied to the outcry of God's people praying. An oppressed minority group amongst the Greco-Roman empire who are dying and suffering going, God, when are you gonna get us there? Because there are people who are literally stopping it ever from getting there. And so in this vision, this angel takes, scoops up all these prayers and then he throws them onto the earth in this flash of fire and lightning and we move on to the six of seven trumpets. Now I'm gonna go quickly through all of these. And if you wanna follow along, they're gonna be in chapter eight, six through nine. But the first angel comes out and sounds his trumpet. And here's what John sees. He sees hail and fire mixed with blood pouring out onto the earth. One third of all the plant life is burned up. All the grass is burned up, but no one blinks. So the second trumpet sounds and a star drops out of heaven into the sea. A third of the sea becomes blood. Sea creatures die. Even shipping lanes are destroyed. One third of economic industry is completely ruined on the earth. No response. So the third trumpet sounds and something like a comet hits the earth and the water's poisoned and people start to die. And then the fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun, a third of the moon and the stars, the world goes dark. Creation is literally unraveling. And at this point, 
John hears an eagle flying overhead and it cries out, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other three angels. Nothing is happening. Those within Rome who are making their living off of gladiatory slaves shrug and say, well, at least it ain't my third of the earth. And now the fifth angel blows his trumpet. Some kind of evil being named the destroyer is given the keys to the abyss, this black hole of anti-creation. Out of it crawls these locust-like people-faced lion-tooth crown-wearing demon ninjas led by this king and angel of the bottomless pit. And they scatter over all of the earth and they torment people. But they're told, don't touch the grass. And this is the first woe that has passed. The sixth angel sounds his trumpet. A demonic army made of horse monsters with snake tails rides out from the east and kills one third of the people on the earth. Pause. This is a vision that is disturbing and violent. And if I am honest, this is the type of Bible story that growing up I used to hear when I was a young man from people who would articulate this part of the Bible as if it was an excuse for both their anger, bitterness, and use of domination in their own lives. I heard this growing up as these type of like God threats to those who couldn't figure it out or believe the right things or were not behaving the appropriate way of just really an opportunity to wail on people. And they would use that as a justification for that own uh, attitude within their lives. So it's no surprise that when I got to this part of the Bible, when I did become a Christian, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Because how do you reconcile the God who sends his son to die for the sins of the world, who washed the feet of his literal enemies and suffered and was tortured to death while crying out, Father, forgive them, with a vision of scorpion, locust, demon ninjas, and demonic armies sent to kill people? Can we just ask that question? What does this have to do with God bringing heaven on earth? Why do we need to go through here to get to there? At this point, you've got two options when you're reading the Bible. One, <clears throat> close it up, check out, the rest of, check out for the rest of the sermon, get on your phones and figure out what you're gonna do for lunch. Uh, ignore the fact that this exists in the Bible. Go back to the stories about Jesus and First John and how God is love and pretend like this doesn't even exist in the Bible. <clears throat> Option two, you read those passages without context. You forget Jesus of mercy and that God is the God of love. And you conclude that by the time we get to the end of the Bible story, that's just how God is and people better deal with it. Or option three, which I will recommend, we can pay attention to the clues that Revelation has artfully been given us throughout the entire book. Like the fact that every single sequence of judgment begins and ends with a vision of the throne room, which demands our minds and our imaginations that every time we see this, we have to think of the throne of God and the lamb who was slain. So every vision that you see within Revelation that is like this, you have to hold hand in hand with the God who sent his son to die for the world. And here's the fun thing about the Bible. When it like tries to make you hold two things at once, what's so cool about that is it usually begins to reshape how you think about both. 
That's just like my personal experience of like reading the Bible. So if you hear that and you're like, all right, Jake, I'm, I'm down, let's do it. Let's try to hold these two together and wrestle it out. What is going on here? Well, first, reminders. We've said before that Revelation is apocalyptic literature, remember? And that means that we need to let symbols be symbols. It's not about predicting some far off future timeline. It's about reshaping the church's imagination to see earth from the perspective of heaven. And so that means that we don't have to see these things as any more literal than Jesus, not literally a woolly lamb, like we said last week. John, in fact, is explicitly leaving us clues that ruin it for us if we're trying to make this a predictive timeline of the end of the earth. For example, did you notice how in eight, <clears throat> chapter eight, verse seven, all the green grass is burned up? But then in chapter nine, four, we're told that the demon locust beasts aren't allowed to touch the grass. What grass? John, you made a mistake. Clearly, as you're writing this, you forgot that all the grass is burned up and these demon locusts are told that's just... But then if you realize, you go back to chapter six that John talked about last week, he narrated how within one of the seals, God basically takes the entirety of the cosmos of the heavens, the sun, the sky, the stars, and he rolls them up like a scroll and they're done. But now in this chapter, all those things are back so that God can judge one third of them again. These visions within Revelation are symbolic images that are meant to reshape our imagination. If they are horrifying and terrifying, it's because they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be shocking. They're supposed to be a splash of water within the face, but not a literal prediction of how things are gonna turn out in the end. So why is it so vivid and violent? Well, horror movies, but like good ones. Um, which I'm just gonna now narrate ones that I like. Um, but like, for example, The Quiet Place, right? I don't know if you guys have ever seen it before, but there are these terrifying alien creature beasts that take over the world and it's like an apocalypse. And they're terrifying and horrifying. But the whole point of the writer and the director is to show you this world so that you might actually hear and listen to and live into a story where you imagine a mother who is so sacrificial and tough that she finds it within herself to defend her children. Or a father that is so loving, so sacrificial, he would die for the sake of his own children. That's what the story is about. The alien beast creatures, but kind of incidental. Because the author is trying to reshape your imagination so that you might hear a story that makes you think differently about others in the world. That's what good storytelling does. And Revelation's kind of like that. Remember, we have said a lot so far before the primary goal of Revelation is not trying to predict the future, but it's to make God's people faithful by inspiring our allegiance to Jesus as we bear witness to him in the midst of rampant idolatry. Okay, Jake, so how does Ninja Locust Demon Beast help us with that? Glad you asked. The first thing that we notice if we are meditating on these visions and letting them wash over our imagination, letting them be symbols how they wanna be, is that we notice that judgment is a picture of a good and just God. This is not a bullet point list of how God's gonna end the world, but a visionary experience that reshapes a persecuted church to imagine that there will be a day where God says, 
we're done with evil. We're done. And the only metaphor you can use for how totally and completely gone Satan, sin, death, corruption will be from his new creation, the only metaphor that you could possibly use that would so cover what God is gonna do with those things is total annihilation and destruction. So much so that scholars like Michael Gorman say, and we'll throw it up on the screen, that the language and images of death and destruction symbolize if comprehensible, if disturbing idiom, the universality and finality of God's ultimate eradication of evil, rather than the means by which God brings about that eradication. As the omnipotent one who spoke creation into existence, God hardly needs to resort to literal violence to affect the cessation of evil. Now it begins to fit a little bit more in the God who undid evil by dying himself. To all who follow Jesus faithfully in the church in the first century who were getting totally beat down, this was actually good news. It's incomplete, as we're gonna see a little bit later and where this keeps going on to the vision, but it is a picture of God hearing and going, I'm not just gonna let evil run the world forever. The second thing is that judgment in these pictures is for repentance. What do you mean? Have you guys noticed from Revelation beginning on how slow judgment is in Revelation? Chapter six was like one fourth of the earth, part one, part two, part part seven. And then when we get to chapter eight, one third of the earth, one part, two part, three part, four part. Like it is really dragging on. If God's goal is to just end evil, why doesn't he just end evil? Because it's a warning. Well, how could it be a warning, Jake? You guys have said that this is a letter to the church, not those outside the church. Exactly. This is a warning to the church. This is what it would be like for those Christians back then in the first century who were getting pulled into living just like every other Greco-Roman empire who were still visiting prostitution temples saying, yes, I follow Jesus, but still bowing down to the emperor, they have a vision of the total destruction of everything that they are clinging to. So it is a wake-up call. The visions of judgment are like that alarm clock app that just keeps getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder louder until you get up out of bed to turn it off. It is a warning to the church of all who have been clinging and absolutely falling into the trap of idolatry within the world that this is gonna be the end. This is what it would be like for their imagination in our context. It would be kind of like imagine uh, a church within New York. And imagine that this church, just kind of part of their culture, was so obsessed with economic industry and Wall Street that they talked constantly about the current place of stock set time, and they were so consumed by what they did with their money that they shared more about what was in their Amazon shopping list than they ever did talk about how to care for the poor. Now imagine they get a letter that's like Revelation 2024, and in it there's a vision of a comet falling from the sky and destroying Wall Street. What would that do? 
Or there's a vision of every single drive of all the Amazon packages, and then just suddenly the ground opens up and swallows it all. What would that do to their minds, to their imagination? It serves as a warning. It would be, it would be like this. Let's say that tomorrow you get a vision from God that he is going to completely and utterly end all sex trafficking, but with it, all lust and pornography and every single misuse of sexuality that seeks to dominate human beings. And in this vision, you would see God just totally destroy all versions of that, but every little tendril that makes its way into every lust and everything and every phone and every computer that opens up those images, it explodes. What would it do tomorrow to our imagination? That is why these visions are so vivid, so shocking. They are meant to wake us up, to unmask the reality and nature of evil that is getting in the way of God, bringing about new heavens and new earth. But as shocking as these images are, they so far are not actually the most shocking. You're like, it's gonna get worse than demon locust ninjas? It will. Um, Here it is in chapter nine, verse 20. It says, after all six of the seven, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Here's what just happened. The vision is that the whole world just got done being tortured and killed by demons. And then the very next moment, they are bowing their knees and worshiping the same demons. What? If you are the first church reading this, and you're watching these visions unfold, and you're thinking, surely at some point, if God just rains fire from heaven, then people will turn around and go, you know what, maybe I should stop murdering people. Surely, God, if you were just to open up the scroll of the sky and begin to send all these demonic armies that represent the idols that people are already worshiping, that then people go, you know what, I don't think I want to keep worshiping things tied to demonic forces. No, it doesn't even work. Business as usual for the world. Now what? First of all, is that even possible that that would even be the case? I don't know. Imagine if one third of our world just completely fell apart because of our ecological, horrible stewardship and pollution. Would people suddenly change? Or would two thirds of the world go, glad it's not my part of the world? Now what? If we're stuck on our road and God has to do something about those who destroy the world and evil and brokenness to get to this new creation, and and if he just keeps cranking up the volumes, nothing's gonna happen, well, then what? Do we just crank it up to max? Does God just answer like with retribution when his people are crying out? Like, how are we gonna get from here to here? That's why you need the seven thunders. Look at Revelation 10, it's gonna be through verse one and four, but 
what happens is that John, after all of this, hears another angel show up in might and power, stomp on the ground, cry out with a loud voice. And when this angel cries out with a loud voice, seven thunders shout out. And John's about to write down what the seven thunders contain. What do you think they would contain? One third of the earth got destroyed. Before that was a fourth. Maybe a half of the world gets destroyed. Maybe all of it. I mean, it's not working. Is it, I mean, I don't know what would be worse than demon locust ninjas, but maybe like double demon locust ninjas. What would be worse? What's in the seven thunders? God's not interested. It says immediately when he hears it, he was about to write and he heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have sealed and do not write it down. The seven thunders isn't even a stop on the journey. It's only a blip to point out that if judgment does not bring about what God desires, repentance, he's moving on. Something else must come. That is the heart that God has for judgment. Not to beat up on the world, but to bring them to a point of turning back to him. And the seven thunders are this image of if that doesn't happen, God's like, seal it up. I don't want, we're not even gonna hear it. We're, mo- we're doing something else. We need to move forward on the highway. We need something new to get us from where we are here to this new vision of reality and heaven covering the earth. If it's not just progressively making things worse, what then would actually do it? And then that same angel comes out to John with the scroll that we've been waiting for the entire time of Revelation. And it's open in his hand. What's in it? Well, he walks up to John and he tells John, I want you to eat it. And he eats it. It's sweet in his mouth. It's bitter in his stomach. And he is told that you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Somehow we're going to see that the way that God is going to bring about new heavens and new earth is not going to be through more and more judgment. It's going to be a job for a prophet. And that's where we get to the two witnesses. Now, this part of scripture, which is in chapter 11, the two witnesses, is some of the most confusing uh, and misread parts of Revelation. Uh, And so... What I'm gonna do as we work through it is I'm just gonna tell you real clearly what it means and then walk through how we get there. Chapter 11 of Revelation is a parable of the church's vocation from when Revelation was written until Jesus finally comes back. It's a symbol for the vocation and mission of the church back then, right now, and until Jesus comes back. And that vocation and that mission is that of a faithful witness to the point of suffering and dying for their enemies. That's what Revelation 11 will be about, but let's read it. Picking up in 11, verse three, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how 
he is to be doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. This is what John sees. Two people who we know are the church We know that because we've already been told in Revelation, every time you hear something about lampstands and olive branches, it is tying back to Zechariah 4, God's chosen people empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we know this is already an image for the church. And now we're supposed to see this church through the eyes and memories of all these Old Testament stories from Elijah and Moses and both of them going against the powers of their days. And they had powers to shut up the sky and to uh, strike the Nile with blood. Here's what's so crazy about the telling of this story. The two prophets have all these powers. Do they use them? Nope. It goes expressly to tell you, this is how anyone who attacks them will be doomed to die. And then what happens after they preach their message of Jesus, their message of the gospel, the good news that we're all going to this place on the map, out of that bottomless pit, anti-creation, comes this beast. Who is he? We're gonna get even more within Revelation but he is the personification of all that is evil. And he comes, attacks, and conquers the people of God. And they die. They lay on the ground and there's this like weird uh, Christmas type thing going on where everyone's exchanging presents and partying and celebrating because man, those people in the church were such a nightmare to deal with. Jake, didn't you say they were preaching about the gospel and the good news about Jesus? Yes. Why would anybody react that way in a world like that? Because here's the problem about the gospel. If the good news about Jesus is that God has accomplished on earth through his death and resurrection of his son, making a new world of forgiveness and life, that means there's no more room for the slave driver. It's really good news for the slave It's not good for those who make their entire economic power off of the backs of others. There's a flip side to all of these moments of evil that the fact of preaching the good news of the world going there is an offense and a horrible torment to any who would cling to the power and way of idolatry and the beast. And so you have this nightmarish picture of the church standing up, preaching the message of Jesus, and then they die. And in that moment, do we just go, it's over? 
Like if this was the way that God was gonna fix things and judgment didn't work and the message didn't work, now what? Well, you gotta keep going on the road. The very next thing that happens is after the three and a half days, breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they had heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up in cloud and heaven and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. It's in that moment that everyone repents. So judgment didn't work. But let's just summarize it again in case you missed it. So the, this is symbol is that the church preaches to the world a message of truth and grace and justice and love. And gosh, Jake, that sounds a lot like, no, it can't be. The church has power from heaven to do miracles ordained to them, and they totally restrain their power. Instead, preach the message of goodness and truth, even if they hold that back and they don't fight power with power. Gosh, it sounds like, no, 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 this isn't revelation. And then the witness is opposed and attacked and killed by an enemy that couldn't stand to hear their message because of all that he had to gain from evil. And they take the witnesses and they hang them up on a, no, not on a cross. That's a different story. Wait, sorry, I'm getting these things mixed up. Their bodies are laying in a street and it's the city where Jesus was crucified. Its name was Egypt and Sodom, but it's also called Darfur, Auschwitz, the Rwanda killing fields, the Trail of Tears in America and Guantanamo Bay. And in, it's in that moment that their bodies are laying there. Three days, their bodies are rotting. Three days, they aren't even given a tomb. Three days, God puts his mouth on their mouth. They gasp in breath. They stand on their feet. The people who are in the middle of celebrating all that is going on, finally, we defeated them. Finally, this is all over. They watch them go up into heaven at the command of God's voice, and then they repent. It's in that moment of the church taking on this image of sacrificial death and resurrection life that the people who are bent on destruction turn finally around. This should not surprise us. It should not surprise us that if Jesus who preached a message of truth and grace, that he stood against evil, but he did not fight it back with a sword, but with his own body being sacrificed, that he calls his church to do the same thing. It should be no surprise that the God who undoes evil and all of the injustice of the world by giving himself, how does he bring the world from here to here? It is through the church empowered by the spirit of Jesus to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, speak like Jesus, to stand feet planted to the ground, even if the powers of evil would attack them and say, I'll give my body for you. There's not one message I heard growing up about how scary things could be in hell or all the threats that I told you guys about that ever got my attention enough to change my heart. You know what did? Being around men and women 
who loved Jesus, lived like Jesus, spoke like Jesus, and they continued to do so even if it cost them everything. Now, someone was saying earlier, like, I heard today that we're all gonna die is the message. Well, John is not, you know, he knows that some will actually, actually have to. But for so many of us, the reality is nothing more than what Jesus already said. If you wanna follow me, take up your cross. In order to follow Jesus, over and over, there are these little mini dyings. And it is in that moment that the world who stands against Jesus finally sees it and turns towards him. And it's in that moment that I love to just ask, if this is how God's gonna do it, if God's vision is to bring about heaven on earth, why is he taking so long? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. That feels like a long time to me. I, and I've always thought that. But here's my answer. I became a Christian when I was 19. That's 2009. I want you to pretend for a second that you knew me in 2008. Now I want you to pretend that you love me. I want you to pretend that God came to you in 2008 and said, I'm gonna come back tomorrow. What would you say? I would hope that even if your life as a Christian was in agony, even if you were filled to the brim with suffering, even if you were so sick of standing against evil and idolatry and it made your life a nightmare, I would hope that you'd love me enough to say, Jesus, can you wait a little longer? I need you to wait till 2009 for Jake. In answer to the cries of how long, O oh Lord, from the church, this entire series of vision is given to God's people to reshape their imagination so that they might see that it's actually in living and taking up the cross like Jesus that this world is changed. What God wants for this world is not destruction, but repentance. By the way, where's the seventh trumpet? Where's that third woe? Revelation ends <clears throat> with a celebration in heaven. The kingdom of God has come to the earth. Now, finally, through the faithfulness of the two witnesses, God's kingdom is being brought onto earth. Where's the seventh trumpet? Does it bring judgment? No. What God wanted was accomplished through his faithfulness of his church. Let's pray. Father, may every bit of what Revelation is supposed to do be done in our hearts and our minds. May it renew our imagination to see our world from the perspective of your kingdom of heaven. And I pray over everybody in here, Lord, and especially the ways that the enemy might lie and try to snatch away the word or do anything to say, see, God's like this. I pray that, God, what they would have in their minds is nothing but the clear picture of Jesus suffering and dying for their enemies, of a God who is so good and just that one day he will end all evil. 
Do this for the sake of your church so that we might be faithful and renewed to follow you and love Jesus. Amen. We are going to respond to the word of God. God speaks and we get to respond. We respond uh, today by taking communion, something that we do every week, a sign with our body and our senses, a reminder of the very presence of Jesus right now, reigning in heaven with us and of his death for us. And we're gonna give in response. We have giving boxes in the back and this is actually something that we do out of response of God gave everything to us. And so those of us who follow Jesus are so excited to cannot help but give. We're gonna pray. And I'd imagine there is a lot stirred up within a passage like this. And if you want to respond to God in any way of prayer, there's gonna be prayer teams up front or you can grab any of the pastors after the service or just ask anybody, can you pray with me? Pray, respond to God, crying out to him. And lastly, we're gonna sing, we're gonna celebrate this image because in it, we get to see Jesus and be reminded of his love. So with that, let's stand and respond to God.